Welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, a place for sustainability conversation, expert interviews, and news hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. We want to know, what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now, let's get into today's show. Sustain UW podcast is back with season three. I'm your host, Hannah Schilling, and today we will be talking about the political and economic landscape of climate action that occurred this past summer. It was a lot, we know. So we dive into the recent Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia versus EPA, in which the court curbed the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from coal-fired power plants. Then we take a look at Congress's recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, which has been hailed as the largest piece of climate action to come out of Congress. With me today, I have two guests, professors on this campus, and experts in their respective fields who help me dive into these topics and give us perspectives we may not have thought about before when talking about environmental topics. Okay, so I'll I'll go first. Uh, I'm Corbett Granger. I'm an associate professor in applied economics. I'm an environmental and natural resource economist. I study distributional impacts of different types of regulations, basically who wins, who loses. And then I'm interested in political economy factors, uh, which types of firms favor which types of regulations, and how does that play out? My name is Howard Schwaber. I'm in the political science department. I focus on public law, among other things, public law. Uh, and relevantly, I focus on things like regulatory systems and the authorities, division of authority between, say, Congress and the administ- uh, executive branch, uh, what courts have said recently about the limits of those authorities and how that plays out in terms of trying to move forward with sustainability-oriented regulatory systems. Thank you. So I'd love to start off with some background of the case. First, we can kind of talk about the legal background, maybe the political background, and then Corbett, I'll come to you maybe just for some previous economic policies that might have led up to kind of the tension that we see today um, in the courts? Sure. So the backstory to this goes back to the 1930s. Uh, during the early years of the New Deal, as most of our listeners probably know, the Supreme Court was striking down a lot of federal laws, especially two massive New Deal programs. Uh, the National Industrial Recovery Act was the biggest one. There was then a series of extremely um, landmark, as, as we say, Supreme Court cases. First, a couple of cases in which the court struck down programs by saying there are limits to how Congress can delegate authority to executive agencies. And then uh, a case where they sort of backed off after Roosevelt threatened to back the court and there was a huge political struggle and so on. For a very long time after that, it was generally assumed that this particular bit of legal doctrine was dead and not something we would need to worry about. Uh, it started to come back with the Roberts Court not just in this uh, 2022 case, EPA versus West Virginia, uh, but even earlier. But what emerged was a new rule. And I'll say what the rule is, but, and then I want to explain though a little bit why it matters or, or what it's for. So the rule is called the major question doctrine. It's a strange rule in two ways. One, it's completely made up out of whole cloth. There's not even a pretense. Usually they pretend uh, uh, we've done things this way for a long time. There's no such pretense here. The Roberts Court says, no, this is a new thing we've come up with. The other thing that's very strange about this rule is it was not announced in a case where there's discussion and debate and briefs are filed and there are long written opinions. It sort of snuck in 
in a bunch of rulings uh, through the shadow docket, as it's called, which are rulings on, injun- on injunctions, emergency stays, that sort of thing. So it's an odd doctrine in both of those two ways. What it says is that if I'm sorry, I have to give another bit of background. All executive agencies operate on the authority of enabling statutes, laws passed by Congress that says, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency may make rules regulating the presence of pollutants in the environment. That's one example right there. Um, The National Environmental Protection Act. What this new principle that was really announced in just, just in that case in June of 2022 says is that if in the opinion of the court, what an agency doing involves a major question and before you ask, there are absolutely no criteria that have ever been preferred as to what does or does not constitute a major question. But if in the opinion of the court, what an agency is addressing is a major question or involves a major question, then the agency has no authority to act unless Congress specifically gave them that authority. So back to my example of the EPA, if Congress says this new agency that we're inventing Uh, shall have the authority to determine tolerable limits of pollutants in, say, the water. That's a general grant of authority. The agency turns around and says, well, we're going to ban all, let's say, you know, all traces of mercury from the water. If a court decides that a rule banning, setting the tolerable limit of mercury at zero addresses a major question, then the EPA can't do it. They would have to get a specific law passed by Congress that says the APA, EPA, excuse me, there's something else called the APA. Um, that's the Administrative Procedures Act. It's also relevant, actually. But um, they would have to pass a law that specifically says the EPA shall have authority to regulate mercury in drinking water. Or possibly they would have to have a law that says the EPA is authorized to set the limit of mercury at zero. It's not clear, just, just as there are no criteria for what's a major question, there are no criteria for what degree of specificity is required. But that's where we are. So in purely formal legal terms, uh, the Supreme Court has declared that it has the authority to um, invalidate any action by any executive agency, and many executive agencies deal with things like environmental issues, um, if the question that it addresses is major. Stepping back a minute, this is about separation of powers. So if we go back to the 30s again, actually, we can go, we, we can go back to the 1780s, if you like. Um, obviously, in our Constitution, from the very beginning, a big question is how are powers distributed among the branches of government? In school, you probably were told, somewhere around sixth grade, that the legislature makes the laws and the executive carries them out, and the judiciary interprets them. That hasn't been the whole story, and it certainly hasn't been the whole story, since the growth of the administrative state starting in the beginning of the 20th century and the growth of agencies. Executive agencies make a lot of policymaking. The more modern model is Congress gives broad authorizations and agencies fill in all the rules, all the specifics. And that's been the model that's worked for the last most of a century. This court, the Robert Courts, appears to be trying to rein in the ability of the executive branch to make policy that might be contrary to the political preferences of the party in control of Congress. And so that's where the politics enters in. Um, because this is something that very much empowers Republicans in Congress to prevent at, the, at present the Biden administration, could be a future different administration, but to prevent the Biden administration from going forward and its agencies from going forward with any kind of broad uh, environmental or sustainability type of initiative through, without going to Congress and getting a very specific filibuster proof vote through both houses. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's where we're at. Thank you for that. Corbett, I will move on to you just asking about um, some of the kind of policy that maybe was talked about in this opinion and why maybe it was or was not a major question, even though we don't have that criteria, as you've stated. Or in your own opinion, do you think like the Clean Air Act explicitly gave the EPA, did they delegate them that power to regulate those greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not an expert enough to say whether or not I think it could be regulated under the Clean Air Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my reading of the Clean Air Act says that uh, EPA has authority to regulate um, criteria pollutants that harm human health. And traditionally, going back to the 70s, we've been thinking about particulate matter, ozone, uh, SO2, NOx, um, and and so on. And so what they were trying to do here was add carbon dioxide as as an airborne pollutant that harms human health. Um, I do think that it's an airborne pollutant, and I do think it harms human health. I I don't know whether or not um, it should be regulated under the, the Clean Air Act. What they were trying to do was use existing uh, existing laws and trying to make some act, you know forward progress toward regulating greenhouse gases. Howard, I'll just ask you if we could give our listeners what was the opinion of the court here and what kind of precedent does it set for future cases then? Sure. Um, so the opinion was very long on broad assertions and very short on specific analyses or details. Uh, I've, been, I've, I've described the major question doctrine. One obvious issue that we've already alluded to is what are the criteria for a major question? In this instance, it seems to be the case that the criteria for major question is how much money is involved <laughs> or what is the scope of the potential economic impact? Because the justices are uh, really concerned that if we read the Clean Air Act to authorize the EPA to regulate the production of CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, that would mean that that agency would have authority over a huge swath of economic activities and a huge swath of industrial activities. Um, And that, I don't know how to put this any better, seems to have felt to them (laughs) like a bigger grant of power than what Congress likely had in mind in the 70s uh, when the Clean Air Act was first enacted. And I have to say, it's not an implausible position. I mean, there's a as a student of constitutional law, I'm a little bit taken aback by this invention of this doctrine out of thin air. Um, but it is true that particularly in the post-World War II era, executive agencies have increasingly taken over an enormous portion of the policymaking authority of Congress. This is something political scientists argue about. Some political scientists argue that that's one of the things that makes Congress so dysfunctional because they're not responsible for producing any actual rules. So they can afford to engage in dumb shows and noise uh, um, because someone else is doing the actual work. So, I mean, there's one argument that says, you know, this is about putting responsibility where it belongs, back on Congress. So the voters, if they don't like the rules that are being made, can vote a different party in or, you know, throw the rascals out. That's one way to look at it. Um, Another way to look at it, which would point in the opposite direction, is that in a modern political economy, as complex and as state-centric as a post-industrial capitalist state like the United States, um, it is implausible, if not impossible, to imagine Congress playing a very much more direct role in specifying uh, what needs to be done. And if you combine with that the certain pathological state of our politics, um, you would be reaching a point 
where the problems of our political system make the regulatory state incapable of functioning. And that, um, to, to borrow a famous line from, a, from an opinion in a very different context, you know, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. So, you know, you have these competing imperatives. Philosophically, I, I can see their point that there is something alien to the American constitutional system about saying agencies can just make all the rules they want with no restriction. That really is delegation of the, what again, what in sixth grade we learned was the function of the legislative. On the other hand, the immediate consequences, and this all depends on how broadly lower courts apply this new rule, and we have no idea how that will be. Uh, I can promise you different courts will reach different conclusions, so it will have to go back to the Supreme Court to be clarified. I can promise you that more aggressive judges, think of some of the judges in the Fifth Circuit in Texas and some of the Trump-appointed judges, just from, just from what we've seen you know, in the past year or so, I'm not, uh, I'm not projecting anything here, um, will be very eager to use this principle uh, to strike down federal programs. As listeners may or may not know, under our current system, a single federal judge has the authority to block an entire national program any single district court judge anywhere in the country. Uh, so I'm expecting a fair amount of chaos, even yeah. if the Supreme Court ultimately makes this uh, a less destructive rule than it might be, the path of getting there is going to be very messy and very ugly, mostly because they provided such a complete lack of any criteria that lower court judges can rely on in applying this principle. In, in defining what is a major question? What's a major question? Um, what are the criteria for answering that question? So for example, are the criteria for what is a major question based on economic impact, based on number of people whose activities are regulated, based on significance for the mission of the agency, based on, for example, I could, if I were a lawyer arguing a case of this kind, I would probably look to see whether there's other legislation that covers that area and say, ah, see, you can tell it's a major question because they passed a whole law about it, which is a reason not to let this law cover it. So for example, supposing there are other laws out there that said, supposing we had a carbon cap and trade regime in place, you could, you could then point to that if you wanted to and make an argument that suggests it shouldn't be, that, that CO2 production shouldn't be covered under the CAA, the, the Clean Air Act, excuse me, uh, because it's covered somewhere else. There, there, there's so many ways one could conceivably make these arguments. We could get historical about this. Um, we could ask if this is the sort of thing that motivated thinking about separation of powers in the Federalist Papers. And if you think I'm joking, that's exactly the sort of thing that I would expect this court to do, no matter how incongruous that seems in this context. So we've been talking about the major questions doctrine and what or what might not be its criteria. Corbett, I have a question. I've taken your class, and we talked a lot about carbon cap and trade and carbon taxes. Is this- Feeling a little ganged up on here. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you consider like the economic impacts of those kind of programs if they were to be implemented to regulate carbon dioxide now as a air pollutant, as like a major economic question or matter? Well, I think climate change is a, is a major problem. And so to address it, I think we need, you know, we do need government action. You know, whether or not we're going to see cap and trade or a carbon tax, I've kind of gone up and down on my, opt you know, the amount of optimism that I have that we'll see something like that at the federal level. We were close uh, with Waxman Markey, um, came down to one vote. Um, so we, we almost had a national level cap and trade program. There have been taxes that have been proposed probably every year back to the 90s on carbon, never gone through. 
so I do think we need some action. The question is, what's the, the best way forward? And I guess that's you know, where this Inflation Reduction Act comes in. It's kind of an alternative way. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that come, some may say, as a like reaction to the Supreme Court uh, ruling that came out in the end of June. And we've also heard that it's possibly the largest climate action that's been taken by the legislature ever. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Corbett, the effectiveness of what it's doing, and I guess also giving our listeners a little brief um, summary of what it actually is doing. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act is a lot of things. Um, It's not just the climate bill, uh, but it's also not really just targeting inflation. The climate aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act mostly focused on tax credits uh, to get more deployment of renewables. Um, And that's both at the installation of new windmills and new solar projects, but also um, trying to get uh, more deployment of rooftop solar uh, for residences, uh, more more efficient heating and electrical systems within households and companies, and then then trying to uh, speed up the deployment of things like electric vehicles that can get us closer to uh, a net zero world. And just with tax credits, it seems that the people who are in a position to already do these things are going to be benefiting most from them anyways. Um, How much is it really stimulating like kind of economic growth, but also like helping environmentally? If these say the people who are buying the electric cars, they're usually the people who already have the money for it and they're just getting maybe a tax credit on it. Yeah. And and I think that's a a really important point to make. you don't want to just give handouts to people that would have been doing this uh, absent the policy. Electric cars is a, is a great example. We already have a lot of people that are driving Teslas. Um, what we've seen recently for tax credits for EVs was capping the uh, the total value on the car. I'm not sure if that's exactly the right way to do it, but it's one way to make sure that you're not subsidizing the purchase of a luxury EV. Um, I think the recent cap was $40,000. I'm not sure if that's moved or not. They're also trying to use these tax credits not just for new EVs, but also for used ones. But if you look at the value of a used EV, it's still a pretty wealthy household uh, that's purchasing EVs. Um, that These haven't really uh, been on the road long enough to be uh, hitting the really low income groups. Um, and so distributional concerns are you know, I, th- I think something that people should be paying attention to. You know, other places that you could see this, there are tax credits for homeowners. They're also trying to target tax credits to make sure that some of these, um, you know, some of these new technologies are also reaching renters. But that's uh, that's harder to do. Um, and so uh, it's it's also difficult. I think your question was how much of this is going to people who are already making those purchases. Ideally, we'd like to target kind of the marginal consumer, somebody who, uh, in the absence of this tax credit, would have purchased a gas vehicle. Um, it's hard to estimate exactly how much uh, of this is displacing um, gasoline vehicles versus people who are truly on the fence. It's also difficult to, uh, to see how much of this is people speeding up the purchase of an electric vehicle. It could be that the tax credit is expiring and they're trying to get in under the wire, and that's something that we see in other instances. In in general, I will say that um, tax credits and similar economic incentive devices aimed at 
altering the market uh, are much more effective on the supply end than the demand end. It's very difficult to reach enough consumers with enough incentive to change a broad pattern of usage and purchases. It's much more efficient and effective, as has been done both in the United States and in countries in Europe, to use tax credits to subsidize, for example, the development of better solar technology mm-hmm. um, or the construction of uh, power stations uh, for these electric vehicles. There have been a couple references already to a certain squeamishness about the idea that in the pursuit of helping the environment, we might be helping the rich get richer, that sort of economic justice concern. But the fact is, uh, uh, any large-scale solution in a, in a liberal capitalist economy is going to involve businesses yep. and businesses motivated by profit to get into this sector and develop products and uh, services, and that is, um, that is the nature of the beast. In the long run, obviously, what we want to do is retire the old most polluting cars off the road. That's hard to do. And this gets back to this economic thing because the people who drive those cars in the first place uh, probably can't afford a new one, electric or otherwise. It's also worth pointing out that it's not just electric cars. There have been tremendous improvements in the the degree to which gasoline-based cars pollute. Uh, We took lead out of the gasoline. You know, there have been all kinds of steps. Um, Whatever we already have, it's easy to overlook. But the creation of things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, were tremendously important. I'm old enough that I can remember when walking across New York City was a visually unpleasant experience because <laughs> it was that smoggy. So, you know, we know we can effectively use regulation on a large scale to alter the environment. We know we can use economic stimulus at uh, the supply end to have at least some effect. But, you know, the piece that I always come back to because I'm in, I study politics and law, uh, uh, not environmental science, or one piece I always come back to is if you saw the news of the last two days uh, about Saudi Arabia's announcement of shutting down production in order to drive up oil prices, there's an enormous strategic dimension here. Europe was reminded with blunt force that it depends entirely on Russia uh, to keep warm in the winter. That's a terrible situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, in the short term, I do mean the very short term, like the next year or two or three, uh, that feeds a political narrative that says, drill, baby, drill. One challenge is to strengthen the connection in the public mind and hence in our politics between the strategic and economic interests of the country and the long-term investment, uh, long-term move away from fossil fuels, if only to be up front of the thumb of Saudi Arabia and Russia. Ultimately, though, uh, this is what's so remarkable about the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it has to go through Congress and it has to go through our politics. And it's just... <laughs> It is remarkable that got passed. Uh, I would not have predicted it two months earlier. If you laid out this thing and said to me, what are the odds of getting through the Senate? I would have said it's not going to happen. So that's really a positive sign. Um, There is a possibility, or there are some possibilities, of working with people. But a situation of high inflation, hotly contested elections, deeply divided politics, and a closely split Congress make a very, very difficult environment, very challenging environment uh, to try and maneuver in. Exactly, yeah. And and I'd add that you know, for years I've been waiting and wanting some sort of climate policy. This isn't the one that I would have designed, <laughs> you know, if, if I were the dictator in charge, but I'm not. I'm not in Congress. Um, and seeing some action that's meaningful coming lot, out of Congress. It's is, a whole lot better huge. than what John Cornyn would have designed if he were dictator. Yes. So. <laughs> that's, that's right. So you guys are both surprised that this actually did pass. Do we have any idea why? 
like it came through. I saw something about like budget reconciliation is a major reason why it came through. I mean, it seems to all come down to economics here. I, I think it comes down to the senator from West Virginia yeah. having a lot more influence than one individual should. True, although of course he only has that individual because it's so closely divided. We, we, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, there were, um, yes, use of budget reconciliation was important tactically and strategically to get around the problem of the filibuster. Uh, unquestionably, there was a good deal of log rolling. A lot of things were put in there to benefit senators and members of the House and get their votes and so on. But that's how politics works. You know, um, I nonetheless remain surprised that there are enough members of Congress uh, who could be persuaded to support this thing. Yeah. And as it tries to amend maybe some parts of the Clean Air Act in making uh, carbon dioxide and air pollutant instead of greenhouse gas, do you think it's going to be picked apart in the same way? I don't think I, – I, I, <clears throat> I've already been surprised. <laughs> I should point out that to this day, every time I have an argument with my wife, it ends with her saying, you said Trump wasn't going to get elected. And she's absolutely right. I did say that. And so I've lost all credibility forever. I cannot imagine this Congress being willing to do that. And that's not something you can do by budget reconciliation. Um, that's, that's a direct enactment of an enabling statute. Uh, and I'm, I find it impossible to believe that the Republicans in particular, and for that matter, some of the Democrats would be, willing, would be willing to do that. And let me say, I really share some of the discomfort of the notion of the EPA having that much authority over that much of the national economy. Nobody elected the EPA. Um, they're not particularly accountable. This is the sort of thing that really ought to be done by Congress or by a president with the backing of Congress rather than by an, an agency. Uh, you know, that no one ever sees. Quick, name the commissioner of the EPA. Um, see? Exactly. <laughs> I'd love to hear your reaction, if you have any, to that statement just about the scope of the EPA and what kind of power they should have. I, I wholeheartedly agree um, that these types of big questions ideally would be coming from Congress and not from agencies. Um, the growth of agencies is something that, you know, economists have been bemoaning for years as well. Could you expand on that? I'd love to get a perspective of why. I mean, I have friends who I work with at the Office of Sustainability here. When that ruling came out, it was just, it felt like a defeat, but I don't think we all kind of quite understood why the scope of maybe an agency should be limited. Um, well, I, I, I think in this example, it's, you know, I, I felt a little defeat too, um, because I really wanted some climate action at home. Um, but thinking more broadly about the scope of agencies and, and the way that rules are made, a lot of it goes to bureaucrats who aren't elected. Um, they, you know, they're sitting kind of separate from the political cycle. Um, they're not really accountable to anybody other than other people at the agency. And to have them in charge of things that are so central to kind of the future of the country, I think, um, is, is problematic. There's a very legitimate question, not to, not to be a downer, uh, <laughs> what has been such a cheerful conversation thus far. <laughs> There's a very legitimate question as to whether a problem on the scale of climate change is one to which a government designed under our constitution is capable of responding at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not now talking about, oh, there are certain kinds of Republicans nowadays, MAGA Republicans who are particularly uh, you know, loud or angry or whatever. I'm talking about the, just the basic structure of the system which is you have to get a very substantial number of voters to care enough to then go elect people, right? So the basic system is, as we understand it. 
particularly in an era of misinformation mm-hmm. uh, and excessively efficient communication, a phrase that 30 years ago would have made no sense to anybody, but now is like the biggest problem we have, and given the global sc- scope of the problem, I know of some writers who, end up, who find themselves, I think to their shock, frankly, settling on positions calling for something close to a kind of dictatorship on the grounds that, you know, we can't afford democracy anymore. And I'm quite certain, given who these people are I'm talking about, that, as I say, they were shocked to reach that conclusion because I, I know for a fact that they didn't start out as sort of, let's find a way to justify autocracy. <laughs> uh, but there's something truly daunting about this. Um, it would require an extraordinarily broad-based coalition of the sort that we have seen in our history not many times to have the kind of national action, kind of action coming out of Congress that would be required to be truly effective. Um, and I, I, I will leave it at that, but obviously there's no, there is no such agreement now, no matter how badly we might wish that there should be uh, or, or how obvious we think it is that there ought to be or how incomprehensible we might even find it, you know, that it doesn't exist. It doesn't. There is no such consensus. Um, and less than until that were to happen, this is going to continue to be a problem that I think the United States government's policy-making entities will only be able to get at sort of around the edges right. with things like tax credits as opposed to simply outright mandates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're all screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was James Madison's fault. All. Yeah, I do realize I'm kind of rambling all over the place. But I, no, no. I love it. It's Welcome. very informative. I'm, no. I'm learning so I'm, I'm much. I'm learning something too. Yeah. I guess just back to your statement about in order to get any kind of real, true climate action done, needing some kind of broader coalition. Mm-hmm. Since, I don't know, last time something like that even occurred in our nation's history. But in the meantime, if we are limiting like the EPA's scope and their power, is that something we want to be doing knowing that? Like that kind of coalition may not even right. be able to exist. Right. So that's yeah. the problem. So, so here I am sitting and, and maybe even persuading you know, <laughs> people that, gosh, separation of powers is a good thing after all. Uh, but not if it means the death of the planet, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where you get stuck into this position where if you try to be realistic, you find yourself saying things you would never have imagined you'd hear yourself say. Like, screw democracy, you know, we need a military takeover to save us. Um, it's actually not that long ago that we had this kind of coalition. And in fact, it's singularly appropriate. The environmental coalition of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It was Richard Nixon uh, with strong support from the Republican Party as well as the Democratic Party that gave us the, and I have to say, transformative body of laws. I mean, compared to what had existed before, these were genuinely transformative. This was, these are the kind of things we're talking about that we would like to see with respect to climate change. It's exactly the right model. Um, Okay, that's 50 years ago. That's a long time or a short time. That depends how you want to play with time, I suppose. What would drive such a thing? Well, does there come a point where there are enough floods in Florida that Floridians start to say, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this conversation? Mm-hmm. Does there come a point where Texas you know, gets hit hard enough by hurricanes? I fear that what it would take to get the kind of broad-based coalition we would need uh, is just an enormous amount of human misery and an enormous um, amount of what ought to be unnecessary costs. And it will have to be, it would have to reach the point where Ron DeSantis, and this is how this goes, doesn't see a political benefit in blaming the Democrats 
uh, for the economy, but rather sees the political benefit on being perceived as someone leading the charge uh, against climate change because Florida is drowning. When that story, the day that story makes sense, we will have a plausible scenario for major action. I don't see that happening soon. When I teach environmental economics, one of the things that I focus on uh, is if you go back to the 70s, that's when we had, you know, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and, and like you just said, that, that came uh, out of Nixon's, Nipa. out of Nixon's White House. And, you know, moving forward, even as recently as the, the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, mm-hmm. which were um, transformative for the way that we r- regulated uh, power plants um, and created uh, the emissions trading scheme for sulfur dioxide, led to huge emissions reductions. Um, you were you were too young to remember acid rain. Um, <laughs> I do not recall. And no. and at, you know the for listeners who are of a younger age, um, it used to be the case that coal fired uh, coal fired power plants say that three times fast in the Midwest pumped so much sulfur dioxide into the air that it landed in New England as rain that took the leaves off the trees. It was the, it the was something was, that I was you know I, I as a young child was scared of. Yeah. No, and, you, and, and if you were smart, you told your kids, don't drink the rainwater. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what happened after that, um, you know, was, was really transformative. It was uh, a market-based, um, you know, environmental regulation with huge benefit to cost ratio. Um, the, the most conservative estimates are about uh, the benefits were about 50 times the cost. And so... Uh, it hasn't been that long when it wasn't unheard of to have uh, Republicans in charge saying, you know, we need to do something uh, about the environment. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I think we keep coming back to the same point, um, which is that our political system is broken. Mm-hmm. And it's a really unfortunate bit of timing that our political system is broken at the time that we're facing <laughs> what by any measure is one of the most profound challenges uh, for policymakers in, in, in our history. Um, but as backwards as this sounds, it may be that it is not until there's events occur such as to prompt an improvement in our political system that we'll be able to have a serious conversation uh, about addressing things like climate change. And that may happen. There may be lots and lots of Republicans, and I'm picking on the Republican Party only because at the moment that party has a larger contingent of, how can I put this? Nutcases. Uh, the Democrats have them too, but not quite as many. But you know, at the moment, uh, the hope for the future lies in very substantial numbers of Republicans becoming disaffected from, from shorthand, the Trump branch of the party, and for enough Democrats to continue to be uh, eager to pursue these kinds of market-based, market-driven initiatives that can be sold in a bipartisan way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, when that point comes, then we will have the political environment in which we can talk about policymaking. The very next election of a president from a different party appoints a new EPA and it goes away. Yep. Yep. And that's extremely costly. That's extremely costly. Yep. That's, that, is actually, that actually can be worse than having done nothing at all mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways. Absolutely. So do you see this major questions doctrine then further any agency, like further limiting other agencies? Not oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. This is not about the environment. I mean, I mean, whenever I say something like that, uh, (laughs) um, of course, the EPA EPA versus West Virginia is about the environment. Of course, climate change is, I mean, talk to a Pakistani. Um, um, 
a place where I've actually spent some time. And the last time I gave a, a public talk to a Pakistani audience, I was asked about the, this was about 10 years ago, uh, the, the three biggest challenges facing Pakistan. And, and I talked about relations with India, and I talked about Russia. And, and, Russia. and then the, th the last one I said was climate change, and they were all totally shocked. And they went, what do you mean? <laughs> Cal California was what I was just going to bring up. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, if there's an area where I have hope, it's that California is taking uh, aggressive stances on a lot of different policies, including their uh, zero gasoline cars by 2030. Um, that is going to have huge spillovers uh, because auto manufacturers are going to respond to something like California because it's the eighth largest economy in the world. And so... Uh, what we've seen with past steps in California, like having more stringent emissions regulations, for example, for cars, we've seen that spill over to what gets produced and sold in other states. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, by California taking kind of strong steps where ideally it would be the federal government, that that in some ways is going to be pushing the firm's hands to, to be a little bit more innovative, produce goods that are a little bit more uh, environmentally friendly, um, hopefully have a smaller carbon footprint. And then that might actually induce uh, the federal government to, to take some steps as well. Absolutely a correct description of, of past practices. And it exists in lots of areas. I mean, high school textbooks are very great extent driven by the markets of Texas and California because once a market is that big, it's just more efficient to make the same thing for everybody than to have separate ones. But there is something new that we have not seen before which is people like DeSantis and Abbott in Texas with their anti-woke capitalism and willing to punish businesses for, well, in their perspective, engaging in uh, <laughs> values-driven political agendas. I would not be at all shocked to see a response from, cases, from states like Florida and Texas saying, you know, we will not allow zero emission cars here. Or, <laughs> you know, if you comply with California, we will do business with you. Or, I mean, there is every part, there, it is perfectly possible we are, we are so used to thinking of firms as the unit of measurement. It's perfectly possible with sufficiently divisive politics to end up breaking firms or necessitating a multiplication of firms. So for every California action, there's an equal there, and opposite not yet. DeSantis well, <laughs> reaction. Well, well, not yet. But, 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 <laughs> but I mean, it's so, possible. It's yeah. possible. And, and this really is the first time we've ever seen this. We've never seen state officials who disagreed with California's efforts to raise environmental standards take direct action to try and counter them. It feels to me like we might, given what we've seen, particularly out of DeSantis in the last year. Mm -hmm. Before we leave here today, I want to ask you, Howard and Corbett, to share one thing our listeners can take with them in their conversations, studies, and perspectives regarding what we talked about. My one-line takeaway, which I'm sure will be different from yours, which is good because we, we do different things, it is, I think, self-deluding to think that you can solve major policy problems in America without a substantial improvement in our politics. And this is one of them, but not the only one. Yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. Trying to think of something that gives me a little bit of hope, though. If you're worried about climate and you're worried about energy, uh, we're seeing markets do a lot of the things that we thought 10 years ago would take regulations, uh, like getting rid of coal. Uh, cheap natural gas has done that. Um, it's not regulations that's been killing coal. It's been the availability of cheap natural gas, and moving forward, that's looking like cheap solar and cheap wind energy. 
Perfect. I love it. Thank you, Howard. And thank you, Corbett, for giving us those tidbits for our listeners to take away from our conversation we had here. Also, thank you for the time you put in and the effort you put in to sit down with me today to talk about how this country's economics and politics play an important role in our environment and our climate action. This has been Hannah Schilling as your host for today's episode, and we will see you next time on Sustain UW. Thanks to the Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison, Dr. Missy Nergard, and to the Director of Sustainability Education and Research, Professor Andrea Hicks. Thanks also to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and to Facilities Planning and Management for supporting this podcast. The making of these episodes requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the entire intern podcast team, and we are so grateful for their efforts. Until next time, continue thinking about how to best sustain UW.